online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Ryan Chetty-Awardener, the world's most awarded bartender, an innovator whose drinks have made it around the globe. For London Cocktail Week, his celebrated lion bars have been recreated together. We'll find out how he became the Lion King of Cocktails. Ryan Chetty Awardener opened his first bar, White Lion, in Hoxton, East London, in 2013 as the first cocktail bar in the world to use no perishables, no fruit, not even citrus, and no ice. Sustainability was the watchword, and it put Mr. Lion, Ryan's alter ego, on the map. Super Lion, Dandelion, Cub, Lioness, Silver Lion, and Seed Library have all followed, as have, frankly, an embarrassment of awards, uh, from International Bartender of the Year to uh, London's Best Bar, the world's most influential bar personality, uh, one of the top 100 Britons, and IWSC Spirits Communicator of the Year. And that's just a handful of the awards. Uh, The list goes on. Uh, He has a newly released cocktail book, Mr. Lion's Cocktails at Home, And to mark London Cocktail Week, he is recreating five of his groundbreaking bars, uh, some of which uh, no longer exist, under one roof at Sea Containers, the hotel. It's a busy time. So how amazing that Ryan has taken the time out to talk to us here on The Drinking Hour. Ryan, welcome. Thank you, David. Thanks. Very kind intro. (laughs) Oh, well. It's at uh, least I could do. If frankly, if we've been going through all the awards, I, we, we'd fill the drinking hour with that. To be honest, but um, we'll come to that in a bit. I want to talk about how you got started because you trained as a chef, didn't you? I did. Yes, I started out in kitchens, kind of just out of school before I was going to art college, and my my grounding was originally in the in the food side of things. Um, but I switched. Yeah, probably about eight months into being in kitchens, I switched from the kitchen side to the bar side. And does the kitchen side help the bar side? I think it does. I think there was a lot of things that I learned from being in a professional kitchen that really helped kind of my outlook of how I approached the bar. I think there was something to do, you know, I, I originally wanted to train about kitchens because I wanted to learn some of the practical side and the, the kind of systems that went into place. And kind of the idea of the, the kind of mise en place, having everything ready and not having to do everything prepared a la minute in front of the guest. I think that was something that was a big inspiration for me going into bars because it just it seemed crazy to me that everything had to be made from scratch, especially when that wasn't necessarily to the benefit of the product. And it was usually not to the benefit of the guest. So there was definitely an influence that came through. But it's also been really now kind of very lovely to be able to look at it from both sides and understand the fact that she's quite a bilateral kind of exchange. So there's very much the, the kind of kitchens learning from the bars as well as the bars learning from the kitchens. Yeah, well, that's good that they both share best practice, I suppose. Um, But you've also got a kind of arty background as well, haven't you? Yes. I mean, I think the one of the reasons why kind of food and drink appealed to me so much was, you know, when I was studying and I jumped around a, a, a few different studies, I went from kind of fine art to biology to philosophy. And I was always trying to find a way of, of balancing the arts and the scientific side. And to me, they were very much the same. It was it was kind of really a choice about manifestation. I suppose that's kind of, um, I suppose, what we've tried to put into practice in, in the bars now as well. Just kind of that reflection of what we want to achieve with whatever's in front of us. And, you know, I, I very much got excited by the fact that the food and drink world allowed that expression. You know, the bits that I wanted to, to kind of explore from a creative point of view or the rigor and the, I suppose, the process driven side from the scientific point of view, I was able to to really explore both. And that's it's really what I've loved about being in this this industry and why I think despite all those studies, I ended up kind of staying within the food and drink world. You exploded onto the scene a decade ago with uh, White Lion and this 
concept. When you look back at it now, obviously it was a huge success and the bar was uh, a sensation really. It was much loved. But actually looking at what you were doing with the concept, um, there would have been plenty of naysayers at the time. Um, just, just tell us how you came up with the concept. Sure. I suppose the, there was a couple of motivations around White Lion as a, as I suppose, a concept. And there, there was a few pillars that came from being in the industry where, you know, I really wanted to demonstrate that we could, there was different ways of working. I wanted to look at the professionalism of what it meant to be in this industry of going, how do we control things? How do we reflect them in a personal manner? And it felt a lot of the time around the industry, around the world at that period, that there was very much a dogmatic approach to if you make a, a craft cocktail, it's got to be hand-chipped ice, citrus-squeezed alaminute, and use a certain set of products. And it seems kind of mad to me that we we kind of become so ingrained in that that kind of lane of it. So there was definitely a professionalism aspect, but it was also, I suppose, the, the kind of consumer side. You know, so many of my friends who weren't in the industry were very much put off by the cocktail world. They found it either kind of pretentious or expensive, or they worried it would take too long. And actually, you know, my business partners were my sisters. And one of the the key things that we saw was, you know, it was all very much the same style of product. There was nothing that kind of reflected the variance or the diversity that you'd find in the food scene or in real life um, in the kind of world of cocktails. And, you know, there were certain points where, it, you know, we definitely butted heads with, you know, the fact that it was quite an elitist world. You, you know, had to know about cocktails to be felt welcomed into it. And there was there was all sorts of problems that felt very at odds with what I saw cocktails to be. And so we we really wanted to challenge that, but we also wanted to challenge, as you highlighted, the idea of sustainability. Why couldn't we look at a luxury product, but have something that didn't create waste or, you know, wasn't about this idea that, you know, something luxurious had to be um, kind of slightly ostentatious as well. Um, so we really tried to use those pillars to to kind of demonstrate something quite different. And although we did it almost as a love letter to the industry to go, look, this is a way of us diversifying and doing things differently it was also a challenge you know it very much was there to to i suppose kick start the industry into thinking differently and you know those topics particularly the idea of sustainability was was just not part of the world of food and drink at that time you know of course there were other people kind of exploring it but it wasn't really brought into the the kind of forefront of a a global conversation um and so we wanted to do something that felt provocative but i think some people as you say there was naysayers who I thought saw it as a little bit more of a an affront to their way of working, whereas it was trying to demonstrate a a kind of a breadth to what it could be. But I think there was also an advantage to the fact that because it was so unique, it was so strange, there was no bar in the world that was doing those kind of things. It did encourage those conversations and it did allow us to, I suppose, kind of shake things up in a in a in a quite loud way. You talked then about what you felt uh, cocktails represented. What do you see cocktails being? So I, I'm very flexible in my definition of a cocktail. So I think to me, a cocktail is about a choice and it's about reflecting the people, the audience, your guests, but also that emotion in that moment, that idea of the occasion. And the beauty of a cocktail is you can control every element of it. You know, it, it can be as simple as serving a, a wine glass and a particular wine in the right glass to demonstrate the side of it you want and that doesn't need to be kind of like a varietal specific piece of glassware it could just be oh it's a it's a much more informal setting you want it in a tumbler or it could be that you have something where you've layered up all of the textures of a drink you've controlled all of the ingredients the flavors the ph the balance all of those things and it's about having something that can change the mood you know i think cocktails are magical for that they can shape or they can contrast and they can they can shift this emotion when you're getting together with people in a really wonderful way. And that's why they, you know, they tend to be born out of a certain place and reflect that kind of culture. And I think there's something really lovely about using those mentalities, but not being strict to the definition of what it is to be a cocktail. You mentioned in an interview I read somewhere that your sister, Natasha, to whom you're very close, and yes. the book is uh, dedicated uh, to her amongst others. Natasha was told she couldn't have a Manhattan. That was a real kind of impetus for us, you know, starting the bars. So Natasha, my sister, and our very dear friend, Karen, you know, they were young and they were successful. They came and visited me when I was just working in cocktail bars. And I used to make little bottle cocktails for them or or for some of their friends or clients. And I really got kind of excited by seeing how, 
you know, these people who weren't part of the industry found this kind of love for cocktails. And, you know, I think they, you know, really got excited by being able to go into places and try these things. But there was a point when Natasha and I went into a bar and Natasha developed a, a love for, you know, whiskey forward cocktails. And, you know, the Manhattan was a favorite of all three of us. And we were in a bar and yeah, she, she went to order Manhattan and the response was, Oh no, darling, that's not for you. Um, and I just remember being quite flabbergasted by, you know, that was so at odds to me with what I always want to do around cocktails and get people excited by it. And, you know, so often you'd go into a cocktail bar in, you know, 2013 and if you ordered a Manhattan, they would tell you the history of the Manhattan and you'd have to sit through this kind of little bit of a lecture before you got your drink. But this felt like a very different level. This felt like, you know, those barriers that a lot of my friends kind of talked about and I never witnessed as somebody in the trade. And so it felt really frustrating to see that as being, well, so sexist, so at odds with kind of anything that I saw kind of drinks to be. Um, and so it was, it was a big motivator for us to go, right, we need to to show that things can be different. They could be much more welcoming. It could be much more democratic as a as a system. And we can show people the magic of a cocktail and, and make it work for a wider audience of people. And that's actually really remained a, a key motivation for us since that point, since those early days. And price point is pretty important to inclusivity, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And it's been you know, that's been a topic that's obviously evolving. Things change a lot with it. But the idea of value has been very, very important to us. And I think value is a, a flexible thing. You can have value in the, the luxury high-end side of things. It just needs to feel honest. And, you know, when we opened White Lion, one of the things that, because we were making everything ourselves, and because I suppose our motivation wasn't money, we were able to to kind of be very keen on that pricing. You know, actually, I, in the kind of decade celebrations, we've been looking back on some of those kind of original menus. And I look at the fact that we were serving a Sazerac with our own rye whiskey that was, you know, on average about eight to 10 years old. Um, and we were serving it with some ambergris in the mix and we were charging eight pounds for it. And, mm. you know, it's it's kind of, if you were to present that to to somebody in a different light, they would think we were ludicrous. But, you know, it was important to us to, to open up to a new audience. And again, to be able to offer a different set of value and to, to show things differently. And it's, even as we've gone into the bars that we have today, you know, Lioness is in a very luxury position. It's a grand space, but we're very keenly priced. And, you know, of course, it's reflecting the expertise that goes into it and, you know, the, the type of ingredients we use and, you know, where we are and what we're trying to position is. But it's still very good value and we're much cheaper than a lot of places. And I think it shouldn't be that that should be the barrier for people to enjoy this. Yes, of course, I understand that it's going to be a special night out for some people. It's not something that necessarily is going to be their everyday purchase, but it should still feel accessible and it should feel like something that they, yeah, they, they don't feel deterred by just simply because of the price. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned value as well, because that's a word that's often misused, I think, mm-hmm. uh, because people associate value with cheap. And yes. actually, that's not value, is it? Value is something that's fair for what it is. I, and I think that's key. And, you know, I think this is where some of that education around it is important. You know, there's been a lot of talk around, particularly in, in London, but across the world, around, you know, the, the cost of goods and what that's meant for, you know, dining out or drinking out and and kind of, I think there has been a disconnect in terms of helping people understand the value of things. Um, there's been some great pieces where where people have highlighted it and tried to lay bare. And, you know, I think that's a key part of the education. But at the same time, people don't bat an eyelid about, you know, spending three pounds on some bad kind of tea bag tea in a cafe. And so, you know, that's actually not good value either. You know, it's 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 the fact that it's a very flexible term and it's important about it feeling fair and I, th- I think that's crucial yeah tell me about it i mean i i quite often i mean a, a flat white which is my favorite coffee is normally about four quid and i don't mind paying four pounds for that at all but mm. what i really really hate is a bad flat white for four pounds because four pounds yes. is a lot of money for something that you're not enjoying isn't it oh absolutely and i think there is you know and it's an interesting change in the world of, of food and drink at the moment because it's become you know, I think the average person's got very excited about having those little everyday luxuries. And that should be something they can go out and they can get a great cup of coffee and they can, um, you know, get a nice like meal out. And that could be something that's very everyday all the way through to ultra luxury. Each of those parts 
should offer value. And I think that's where it gets frustrating with some of the things where it's, the market's become quite flooded because I think there's a lot of people that have seen the excitement around food and drink and tried to kind of, I suppose, muscle in on some of that space, but not really kind of offer the, the, the kind of value of it. You know, there's there's places that are just doing it because they've seen that flat whites are popular. They can add it to a menu and not put the same care and attention in. And actually, four pounds all of a sudden is is, is really not good value for it. Mm, yeah, I quite agree. Uh, sustainability, uh, you've talked about it uh, already and you're a, a bit of a trailblazer here. We're kind of all talking about it now, but um, mm. you were doing this uh, you know, a decade ago. Um, incidentally, uh, no ice. Um, what, what's sort of what's behind that? What's wrong with ice? Actually, the ice thing was, I suppose, it was partly a challenge to, to, again, look at the ways in which we produce things. But it was also to highlight the fact that it's a key component in your drink. If you're making a, a cocktail like that that's due to be kind of crisp and refreshing and, and have that temperature as part of the balance, and the dilution is a key part to be able to get that profile pinpoint and great, a lot of people were just using it indiscriminately. Again, I remember having a conversation with Sasha Protraski of, of Milk and Honey, who really ushered in this amazing movement to care about these kind of, I suppose, ancillary ingredients, things like f- squeezing fresh citrus and, and chipping off um, kind of beautiful kind of big hunks of ice. You know, I think, you know, when I spoke with him, he's like, I, ad- I addressed those things because people were using generic, terrible versions of it. You know, your citrus came in a pre-powdered form and the ice just came out of some bags that you would kind of pull from the, the local shop. And it was, you know, he addressed them to kind of demonstrate that they were crucial parts of the, the scale, but it didn't mean that they were always the best way. And I noticed that there was a lot of bars that were using these block ice things and they were, you know, that was their sign that they're a true cocktail bar. And I remember tasting, you know, I was at an event, it was very, very busy. And there was this melt water off this big block of ice. And I tasted it. And I was expecting something to be crisp and, you know, the perfect mineral profile and lovely and refreshing. And it tasted awful. And I remember thinking, well, if if 40% of your drink could be that dilution, why are we not paying attention to that as well? You know, and it's come a long way, you know, great ice machines do control that. And they've got a, a profile that that means that it's a it's a positive point in your cocktail, but nobody was questioning it. So what we did at White Lion was we we filtered London's tap water because it's great, it's safe, you can drink it at any point, but it's not necessarily delicious. Mm. Um, so we then remineralized it to a profile that we knew could be a platform for for our great drinks. Um, and so it was again, it was a conversation starter to get people thinking on how do they control every element and make sure. They're putting that care and attention into to every detail, not just the spirit they pick up that's, you know, a beautiful bottle of whiskey, but then they're ignoring the rest. Yeah, actually, uh, along with my irritation at a bad flat white, another big irritation of mine is uh, my favorite uh, cocktail is a Negroni. Um, mm. it's predictable, I know, but I was there about 20 years ago on that one. <laughs> and I, I hate um, those awful, usually American um, sort of hollow ice cubes that melt almost immediately. And they, they're already, they, they just ruin it, basically. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, again, it's those details that, you know, making a cocktail can be very simple. You know, that's the beauty that we've tried to, to kind of demonstrate in, you know, the Masterclass series or the books is, is trying to recognize that it can be part of your home and everyday life, but you should care about these little details as well. And, you know, putting in, I often say to people that, the easiest thing they can do at home to be able to kind of make better drinks is get decent ice cubes and keep a load of ice in your freezer. It's the control in that aspect that actually probably elevates your drink from being okay to great. And, you know, when you get a drink like that, where, you know, the beauty of a Negroni is it's, it's fairly bulletproof. You know, the, the, the ingredients, as long as the vermouth's kind of fresh enough, a good gin, a, some Campari and a decent sweet vermouth are going to give you a really good drink. But it can be really let down, as you say, by those little pebble ice that really kind of, you know, lose the kind of the delicacy and the balance of that cocktail. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it is a really important ingredient and there's ways of being able to control it. It's not that everybody needs to go buy a fancy ice machine or, you know, they need to be able to, to kind of get hold of like the most pure water or anything like that. It was just to be able to show that people should care about it and think about it rather than just accepting either what's in front of them or what's the established way of doing things. Yeah, here, here. Um, dandelion. 
Um, mm-hmm. Now, when I uh, prepare for an interview, I do my homework, I do my research, um, I, I, and I have this obsession as a journalist with never asking a question that I don't sort of have some understanding of the potential answer to. Um, And so this is a very frustrating one here because I've been doing my homework about Dandelion, which was, um, you know, raved about. And Mm -hmm. just as it was named World's Best Bar, you shut it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, I think there's a, a couple of people that have been confused by that move. But strangely enough, it felt so logical to me. And actually, even after, because we, I think we announced four days before 50 Best that we were due to close it. And a lot of people turned around and said, well, you've won this award. Surely you're not going to close now. And actually, it was the opposite. I was like, I've, I've never been more sure. And, you know, there was, I listen, I loved that bar. I loved, I'm, it's been so lovely having some of the old team members kind of rejoin us this week to be able to celebrate it. But it's everything that we did at the early part of the company was to challenge and encourage a discussion. And I think because the landscape had been quite kind of narrow for a while at that that time, the, the two projects that we created to, to kind of spur those discussions were quite, um, I described them as pointy, and I need to find a better description than that. But they were, they were provocative. They were there to address something in quite a head-on way. You know, White Lion looked at the idea of, um, I suppose, what are the, the established rules of making? What are the things that are inherent to a cocktail bar to be able to create a drink? What is the role of bartending or sustainability? All of those things. Dandelion was a, a logical, I suppose, mirror to that in the fact that it kind of went, well, there's a bounty of things in nature. You know, why do we just use citrus as a acidulant? Why do we use sugar as the only sweetener? Why is it only these sets of ingredients that get used in the cocktail world? And so we we kind of pushed kind of to demonstrate that there was a load of, of, of different things to celebrate from plant life. But both of the bars, and it was strange that it was through a four-year cycle, um, both of them stopped being weird. And they stopped really having a conversation. That was, to me, the thing that I noticed. There was a point where it felt like they had achieved what they needed to do. And so as a company that was always trying to to kind of push and innovate and, you know, get our team ex- excited by, you know, always looking at something new, it felt strange to, to suddenly feel like we were coasting. And I think that was never a position we wanted to be in. It didn't feel appropriate. It didn't feel reflective of what the brand was meant to be about. And it also didn't feel fun. And, you know, I think once we had that realization, it was almost like a light switch. It was like, okay, this is, this was wonderful, but it's now time to look at what's in front instead of what's kind of just looking backwards. And I think, you know, the, the point I often say is it's, it would have felt arrogant just to, to kind of carry on with, with any of the things that we were just doing. It would be for our for our own egos, it would only be for, you know, the people that had already been bought into it. It wouldn't have recruited more people. It wouldn't have uh, challenged a new way of thinking. So we, we, we shifted. And, you know, I think it was not only a shift in terms of those bars, it was also a shift in terms of our mentality. So all of the bars that we've opened since, you know, it's been incredible to see this, this kind of embrace of change in the industry. And it's, you know, now coming from, you know, innovation is being celebrated a lot more. There's more people kind of pushing the boundaries of what food and drink can be. So we wanted to build that kind of room for evolution into the the next series of bars. So they didn't need to be as pointy and they could have their own space to continue to change without us having to do something as drastic as closing them and, and reopening something brand new. You've been described as a disruptor. And I just wonder if you disrupt yourself as much as anyone else. <laughs> I, I mean, there's certainly an amount that, yeah, I think I, I get happiest in that space where we're, we're doing something that feels um, challenging. You know, I, whenever we get together as a team and, you know, it's, it's lovely to be able to have those moments where we ask ourselves, you know, does it feel exciting not only for us, but do we think we can get people excited? Would it feel relevant to both our peers and to the people that we, we love creating for? You know, and, and that kind of reflection of going, you know, we want to be able to continue to to push ourselves and to feel like we're excited and, and, and kind of exploring something new. That's that's really crucial. And I think, yeah, I've got a bit of a short attention span, I suppose, but it's um it's it's certainly something 
that we use as kind of like an internal guide to make sure that we're yeah continuing to to kind of stay true to what we we set out to be i was struck you know uh the decisions you take dandelion being perhaps the uh, most extreme example, but there are a number throughout your, the, 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 the lion history, if you like. They're not commercial decisions in the kind of conventional sense. If you were a large corporation, uh, the chief financial officer uh, would would have a hernia, frankly, to be honest. So, I mean, do you think you're a, a good businessman? It's a good question. And I suppose it depends on what you know, the, a business's success is, is what the goals are. And I think it's never been, we've never wanted to be kind of pie in the sky creatives that don't do things in a commercial sense. But at the same time, money has never been the motivator for me. I've never, you know, cared for like the, the success to me being that we've got, you know, fast cars and beautiful artworks and all of those things. Like it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm very thankful we get to to kind of explore a luxury world and we have lots of friends who who look after us to kind of see nice things but it's it wasn't the motivation and um I, I suppose the only thing I would kind of contrast that with is you know I do feel a responsibility it's not that I'm flippant about the ideas I'm very cautious of the fact that you know we have a good number of people in the company now and I feel very responsible for making sure that we're not doing things in a way that's putting their lives and everything that they've put into this business in jeopardy. So it's it's perhaps not good business in a traditional view of it, um, but it has meant that we are kind of, you know, offering a different set of values. Of course, from, from their point of view, we try and um, make things as kind of like financially stable and, and beneficial and, and lucrative to, to everybody involved in it. it. It's also about offering them kind of growth and excitement and, a sense of ownership over what we're doing and I suppose a sense of pride in, in the idea of going, we're going to push and do something that feels quite different to the rest of the landscape. So I, it's, a, it's a hard one to answer. I don't know if I'm, I certainly wouldn't count myself as a, uh, a, a kind of excellent business person, but I'm very thankful to have business partners who are. Um, so I kind of like trust in, in their kind of like outlook of it. But I think we're all aligned on the fact that you know, the money wasn't the motivation for it. Yeah, and they go with you basically on that. You've obviously got people alongside you who um, share your ethos. I feel very thankful for that. I think, you know, again, that's come from the clarity of what we've we've tried to be. We've always said, you know, we're a company that's trying to do things differently. You know, I think everybody who's joined the company, you know, if you if you wanted to make kind of classic cocktails and do things in a very traditional way, I love that world. It's not in any way that I have any issues with doing that. It's just not what we offer. So it's not going to really give growth or probably a sense of pride for people if that's what they need to do day in, day out. But it's it's also nice being very kind of clear about, okay, this is what we offer if you want to come and work with us. You know, we are going to try and collaborate with lots of different people. We do have a very democratic creative process. We do want all of the team members to have a sense of pride and ownership in the work that they do. So they get um, a kind of a value from it, but they also understand what they're buying into. It would be very tempting uh, to uh, just roll out your very successful brand. And of course, you have done that to an extent. We have uh, Washington, D.C. We have um, Amsterdam, and mm-hmm. we have uh, the, the the ventures within London, but uh, they, they come and go, obviously, uh, to, to an extent. Um, you could have expanded, probably uh, even allowing for the pandemic, a lot faster, but you're clearly quite careful about that. Yes, I think there are certain things that we've done in the business where we know that they can kind of be sent out into the world. And I think things like the media bits that we've done, there's there's something really nice about actually you know, creating something, but also letting go of it, you know, it becoming its own thing when people take that item or that that piece of TV and it becomes their own to kind of go away with. But in terms of the way that we operate the venues, it's it's very hands-on. And that's not that we're there kind of making the decisions. Like All of the teams are enabled to make it their own space, but we're there to be able to, you know, and I speak particularly for Alex and I, who work across the, the across all the venues, is to be able to try and look at new opportunities and avenues for them to be able to to kind of find new ways in which they can grow and apply their creativity. 
So it would be a very hard thing to to just flood it out. And I also think it would it would be particularly with the products we have, it wouldn't necessarily work in that way. They are quite niche. There is something about them that requires a very high human touch and there's something about them that, you know, it it requires the the kind of personalities and the care to have gone into it. And that's not inherently scalable. I feel very kind of excited by the fact that we've been able to open in different markets and be inspired by the places that we've been able to open in. And that's something that remains kind of a source of inspiration and excitement to me. So it's not that it's capped at what we currently have, but I certainly don't think that we would have really just kind of taken one of these concepts and just kind of scattered it around the world. It wouldn't really work. to. Uh, we do a very, again, and this is probably where it's not great business sense. We, we do the opposite of cookie cutter in terms of the way that we work. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to kind of consider that type of scale. But at the same time, I really do have an excitement around the idea of, of opening up conversations to a wider group of people. So there's, there's been elements where we've explored a project about whether it could be scaled, it could go into a slightly different space within the industry. And, you know, that still remains something that feels exciting to me. So it's not like it's a, it's a dirty idea to be able to, to kind of like scale it out, but it would have to feel appropriate to what we're doing. And the products that we currently have certainly aren't those. Why did you choose um, DC uh, not New York out of interest? Because that's the place that's probably more synonymous with a cocktail than anywhere else. Absolutely is. And I think that's, I suppose, a little bit of a motivation for us was was kind of not to go with the the obvious example. And I think it also sounds very strange to say that we accidentally opened a bar, but there is an element of the fact that uh, DC was a, a, a very exciting thing for me because... I fell in love with the city. I went out there. I didn't expect to kind of really see what I did see. You know, I I had a very different kind of, I suppose, projection of the city when I was going in. I went to do a talk out there. And then I remember coming back and feeling, actually, the the reason why it really excited me was it felt like Edinburgh. And Edinburgh was kind of home for me for a long time, very, very dear to my heart. And, you know, there there was elements of it that felt very similar to that. And there was this great collection of food and drink. And I, I spoke to other friends around the US and they were like, why were you going to DC? And they were like, oh, I, and I was like, when did you last visit DC? And they're like, I was probably eight years old. I went for a school trip to go visit the museums. And it felt such a common story that I noticed that so many people in the country and, you know, it's the capital city, yet so many people have discounted it, overlooked it, or just kind of gone, well, there's not a load of great food and drink in that city. So it was also nice to to really showcase that that wasn't the case, be part of something that we could really feel close to as a community. And we were very, very warmly welcomed, which was was wonderful. And we we got to be able to, to kind of collaborate and interact with, with the other amazing things going on in that scene. And that's what we always search for, is, is something that feels that we can be part of. We're never going in just to be like, we know better. We've had the success. We're going to plug it in. We want something that's specific to that location, to that culture, to those people, but also that we can, you know, not feel an island in amongst. We could feel part of a, a, a kind of community of great food and drink. And DC was was that. So it's it's not that New York doesn't appeal. And I love New York as a city. And, you know, we've done a few kind of like events there that have always been very kind of lovely to be able to, as you say, the the knowledge base in that city around cocktails and the excitement around new food and drink is, is very strong, but it was just that DC felt so exciting. And that was the, the unexpected aspect of it really appealed to, to kind of add into the mix. Yeah. And I agree. It's a vastly underrated city. So uh, it's a lot of fun and yeah. I have some good friends who live there. So I, I think uh, uh, if you go there and you spend a night out, then you kind of understand why uh, the, the bar is a, is a, a good fit. Let's talk about, um, some cocktail trends as well, because um, Dandelion, um, rest in peace, uh, in peace, was seen as sort of um, epitomizing a style of cocktail, wasn't it? Yes, I think there was certain ingredients and certain even aesthetics that the, the bar really championed that you, you started to notice kind of crop up around the world. And that was really exciting because the point was to to kind of highlight that there was so many other ingredients to be able to look at. You know, why do we 
if we're looking even like a citrus aromatic, why do we only use a certain set of fruits when there's things native to us, there's things that are abundant, there's things that are invasive, there's huge swathes of ingredients that we can use in not only a more conscientious manner, but also in a way to, to kind of highlight diversity and new sets of flavors and also develop these conversations with our guests. There were so many opportunities that we were able to have where we gave little fun facts. We, we highlighted something that, you know, wasn't familiar to people, but kind of felt very accessible and exciting to them. So, you know, it was really nice to see how much it became, I suppose, kind of mimicked uh, in a lot of senses. But actually, one of the things that I found a bit of a shame was, you know, it was great to have, you know, pine was probably quite a key ingredient within kind of Dan Line's repertoire. And it was kind of largely unseen in a, I suppose, kind of food and drink space at that time. It's now quite commonplace. It's so great to see. It's a great ingredient. It's wonderful. It is kind of a abundant ingredient to be able to use. But it seems strange to me that people only copied the cocktail, the end result. Whereas to me, the really fascinating thing that we developed through our time, you know, it was, I suppose, employed through Dandelion as a development was this idea of getting like a creative, a democratic creative process in place. And, you know, we talked a lot about that as we did kind of talks around the world. And, you know, that to me was the thing I was most proud of about that bar, but it was the least copied bit. And it was the bit that we, we tried to highlight the most as going, you know, this is the system that we developed. We could, you know, we put a thousand cocktails out in a night and we talked about the way that we would set up the bar and the way that the team works as a dynamic to be able to achieve those numbers, but, you know, to do it quickly at a high level of quality and to have smiling faces and people telling you these incredible stories alongside it. Um, it seemed a bit of a shame that the only thing that people really latched onto was necessarily the way that a cocktail might look. <laughs> um, so it was it, it was really nice to see it succeed in some of those um, endeavors, <clears throat> but it was a shame that some bits didn't carry through as well. And do you favor a more mm. pared down kind of approach to cocktail making uh, these days, don't you? Yes. I think actually this is something that I learned a lot from Doug McMaster of Silo. But I think it was also the thing that I suppose joined us together. We we both looked for a clarity of flavor and it was always about having things that didn't feel muddy, didn't feel like there was a hundred ingredients thrown together. And Doug taught me the power of removing things. And there was so much that he would do. I remember when we were developing Cub, still in the early days when Silo Brighton was still a go and we hadn't, closed white lion we were just talking through the ideas and he would do a dish that was three elements or even one element and he would just use kind of different techniques to to represent a different facet or a texture and it would just become this incredibly complex thing with a tiny smattering of ingredients and i suppose i'd always reflected and loving those if i think of some of my favorite cocktails a, a martini or a daiquiri it's there's nothing to hide behind they're very simple in their kind of composition but the, the delivery of what the end product is is magnificent. And I suppose as, as time has gone on, you know, I've, I've shed some of the, I suppose, the, the rules that I had grown up with in, in the kind of classic cocktail world of working in other styles of venue to then start to take away instead of add. And we certainly do some kind of complex ingredients and we do some things where there's some quite strange transformations. But the, there is definitely a, a paired back approach and there is certainly a clarity of flavor as, as the kind of end goal. Um, so I'm, I'm not really a huge one for the kind of maximalist pro approach to, to kind of flavor creation. And are you seeing spirits that are more popular as uh, a base ingredient and those that are less? I mean, a lot is written at the moment about gin going out of fashion, for example. I mean, I think there's, there's always fashion. So there's, there is a, a shift and things will go through cycles. Gin, gin's not going to go away. It's, um, you know, gin is the basis for the majority of classic cocktails and it remains a bartender's favorite. So it's it's going to remain very much kind of at the heart of a lot of cocktails. And, you know, I think one of its key attributes is its versatility. But I think there is also, you know, the this wonderful moment of excitement within the public to to kind of understand new things. You know, the fact that true tequilas and, and kind of like world of mezcal is, is becoming much more, kind of mainstream is, is is very exciting but there's also these kind of products that don't fall within kind of established categories 
Um, you know, you're seeing some wonderful spirits that I suppose maybe aren't as popular in, in cocktails, anything from your, your kind of aquavit uh, to, you know, people looking at things like sherry and, and other fortified wines. But there's also, um, as an example, the the team out of, of, of Copenhagen, so the empirical team who are making spirits that don't, you know, one's made from sorghum and it doesn't really fit within rum. It doesn't fit within vodka. It's not within one of the kind of usual categories or they're using a kind of multitude of ingredients and a kind of composition that's not a gin and it's not a kind of spiced whatever. And I think that's a really exciting space because it's, again, you're you're getting out of the confines of, okay, yes, of course, it's helpful to to kind of explain to a guest that tastes a little like a margarita. But ultimately, we also want to be able to to move beyond some of that rigidity, get people out from those kind of very uh, kind of like tight lanes to go, well, look, there's there's other ways of, of looking at flavor and tell me what you like and crucially what you hate. And then we can find something that, you know, might be new to you to be able to try. Um, and so there's there's a real shift going on in terms of, you know, what is the, I suppose, the must kind of stocks within a bar and what are the things that are cropping up on cocktail menus as a result. And there is a trend, obviously, for um, conscious drinking. Um, are you seeing more and more people interested in less alcohol? Certainly been a boom in category. I mean, it's been part of our menus for the for the last 10 years, but I suppose it's it's gained not only space, but also consumption within the bars as the years have gone on. Now, I don't know if that's wholly down to, I suppose, people shifting towards consuming less. I think they're being much more considerate about what they're consuming, but they're also bars have become much more welcoming about different times you'd go to the bar on different occasions. You know, I think the pandemic highlighted that you don't go to bars and restaurants just for the product. You actually need the social side of it. And as kind of both the public and venues have started to recognize that a bit more, we're seeing people who come into the space to have a meeting. You know, usually it would be very much a social thing, but actually why wouldn't you go in and have, you know, if the bars open at a time that you'd usually want to be able to, to kind of have a meeting it doesn't need to be in an office anymore. You don't need to have those conversations in those kind of rigid formats. I think a lot of businesses have fallen out from that. So those aren't the occasions that you might want, you know, a, a, a kind of stiffer cocktail. So you would still want something that feels special and has that moment where you could perhaps cheers over it or or breaks the ice if you're doing a catch up with a friend. And, you know, it allows you to have something that, you know, still feels adult and considered, but you're not drinking for it. So I think that's also added to the bulk of that that kind of consumption. Yes, of course, people are, you know, I have several friends who kind of like will alternate drinks. They'll go from something alcoholic to something boozeless. And, you know, being able to to kind of, again, diversify and, and offer something that kind of really appeals to a wider range of palates, I think is a very interesting space for the non-alcoholic world. And I definitely see it as something that's going to only increase as new products come onto the market, new ways of educating. And again, there hasn't been very established, I suppose, rules within the the non-alcoholic drinks form. As soon as we got out from kind of just mixing fruits and juices together, there's there's a lot of space to be able to explore. So you're you're seeing everything from kind of a bittersweet aperitivo style serves through to things that feel like celebratory, like a champagne-esque style kind of drink. So I think it's going to be very exciting to see what that space looks like in the coming years. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you talked about the pandemic there. Um, it had a terrible impact, obviously, in uh, at so many ways uh, to lives, chiefly. Yeah. But um, it had a terrible effect, effect on hospitality as well. And you were certainly not immune from those pressures, were you? No, it was, it was, it was very tough for us. And... You know, I think it took a good while to kind of be able to, you know, I, I think a decent amount of the work that we did coming out of it was was just kind of stabilizing and trying to be able to get back on our feet. And, you know, I think that took, you know, longer than expected. And it was different in, in each of the markets. And again, of course, we wouldn't have just rolled out the same strategy for each space. But it was it was very tough to kind of get things back together and to make sure that the teams felt comfortable. And, you know, there was a you know, we, we could understand what guests needed because, you know, I think some people just burst out from kind of like being trapped in their houses. And there was that initial kind of explosion of, of, of kind of excitement in, in the kind of bars. But we also knew that wasn't going to be kind of permanent. 
And, you know, there's been lots of consequences from, you know, the business levels to, I suppose, staffing has has been impacted by that and supply chains. So many things have been very, very difficult. And it's, it's, we're certainly not back on kind of like fully stable ground since then. So it's something that we're, yeah, it's, it's, it's affected everybody, which I suppose is, you know, a little bit of a silver lining because, you know, everybody's trying to work out similar solutions and, you know, it, it's, it's kind of something where there's a, at least a sense of kind of camaraderie around trying to, to kind of overcome some of those problems. But it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly a point that still feels quite difficult for the industry. Well, we all started mixing at home during the uh, pandemic because, frankly, there was nowhere to go. And um, you are now catering for that that market, those people who developed an enthusiasm for home mixology uh, with Mr. Lyon's Cocktails at Home. Just tell us about what you're trying to achieve with the book. So the, the idea behind the book was was to really, I suppose, bring the lessons from the trade and make that kind of work within the home setting. Now, that's not to go, these are the ways that we lay out a bar and this is the production that we do and all the steps that we go to to make the cocktails we do in the bars. It's actually to think on that idea of practicality and occasion. And so the reason the book runs through kind of these different scenarios is because I I really looked at the moments I like to gather my friends and family and, and kind of reflect on the drinks that practically suit that. So, you know, if you've got a big party, you're not trapped in the kitchen, kind of squeezing juice, cutting herbs and, you know, mixing things up a la minute, you're, you're able to spend time with your, your friends and family and enjoy that moment. And similarly going, well, if it's a, a rich, you know, if you, if it's a, a kind of, late evening, it's in the height of winter, you want something that's cozy and you're going to share it with a loved one. How do you reflect that emotion or do the opposite? How do you go, I want to feel like I'm on a tropical island and and kind of transport away from this kind of like period. Thinking on those kind of serves that I know can kind of really play to those kind of emotions. So that's what the book kind of tracks and it maps out and it it really tries to kind of, again, remove the barriers, make make it feel very simple for people to to include this into their own lives and crucially to not be too prescriptive. It's all about saying this drink matches this moment or you have to get these exact ingredients or these are the things that I have, have said that you have to use and therefore they're the, the, the kind of only way you could put this drink to life. It was really trying to go, you know, think on the, the flavors that you love, the ingredients that you include in your house, the spirits that you have in your cabinet. Use these as guides to be able to work better for you to have these magical moments. And they're going to help you kind of discover new sides of your favorite spirits. It's going to help you have more meaningful conversations or catch ups. And, you know, they play to all of those wonderful things that I know food and drink can do so well. Um, so it was um, in a way it, it feels quite simple because it's a very honest and accurate reflection of of the way that I use food and drink in, in my life by giving enough of a, a, a kind of guide for people to, to make it practical and relevant to their own. I like to uh, experiment a bit. It doesn't always go terribly well uh, when I'm mixing a a drink. It's not necessarily my uh, forte. I've never been, I've never worked behind a bar. I've never been anything like a mixologist. Has a cocktail ever gone badly wrong for you? It definitely has. There's been certain points where I've been at a friend's house and they've gone, oh, can you, you know, mix up a cocktail? And you're looking through a cabinet of, of a very sparse, you know, you know, you've got some sweet chili sauce, you've got some, um, you know, some jams and a, a couple of different spirits dotted around. And so you've tried to kind of like, I suppose, quickly understand what might work. But then somebody throws a curveball in and goes, I really like a margarita. And so you're trying to have something that's got that brightness. And, you know, you're looking at something that's essentially likely to have been a strawberry jam old-fashioned otherwise and then all of a sudden you're trying to mix up something else and using some of the 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 kind of various different sour condiments in the house and yeah there's been a couple of occasions where it's been disastrous on that but I suppose the fun of kind of mixing up those drinks is there's there's almost there's always a bit of amusement around it and you know you can always have that little right we're going to do this as a shot and it's going to be our little bit of fun it's not going to necessarily be the most delicious but I suppose that's why you know, I, I put the the bits together in the book that were, you know, these are, even if you sub in something completely different or you throw in a herb that might not be, you know, kind of ideally suited to this, 
this framework and this balance is going to give you something that is largely on a whole quite delicious. Um, so it's, it's trying to remove those points where, yeah, you're trying to force a, a kind of square through a circle and go, well, I need to make a margarita style drink out of these ingredients. But it also gives you enough flexibility to to kind of suit whatever you have in your cabinet at the time. Cocktails are so special. They are very much um, experiential. And being in that bar, providing the bar is you know, done nicely, is a wonderful thing. Do you really think that armed with a book, you can kind of have the same experience at home? It's it's a very different thing to a bar experience. So it's not that it's going to replace that, because I think the beauty about being in the bar is is also about buying into that expertise and, you know, being able to try something new and go out your comfort zone. And this is why I love kind of going into a restaurant or bar and and asking the the people in the venue to to kind of choose for me. You know, I can give some parameters about what my mood might be or what flavors I don't like, but it's really nice to be able to have that. Whereas I think there's something really enjoyable about kind of, I suppose, mastering your own favorite drink. And then once you start, you know, I have, there was one guest who used to come in and they would, they would ask about Manhattan recipes and they really got to the point where they perfected their home Manhattan, that they didn't need to order that when they went into a bar. They were like, well, it, it was really exciting. I all, all of a sudden discovered this whole new range of whiskey forward, you know, either vermouth based or, or kind of like richer style cocktails because they didn't need to order the Manhattan. They've got their own version at home that they know that they love their brands for the right dilution, the, pl- the moments they have it, they've got that nailed. And I think that empowerment side of it is really exciting is going you can always go to a bar and, you know, if you've got a favorite way of it being made, you can have them mix it, but you can try something new. And if you can then feel more confident about your palate, the flavors that you like, the things that suit your mood, you're going to have a better time in those bars. And you're going to be able to have a different conversation that's going to get you into discovering something new. And I think a major point of deliciousness is the unexpected, something that feels fresh and, and new to you. So if you're you're more able to to kind of get those moments when you're dining out, when you're kind of visiting bars, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to feel like you've you've kind of helped people along their journey with. Looking to the future, I have to ask you first of all whether Cub is going to come back because that fell victim to the, the pandemic, didn't it? It did indeed, and it's been very very emotional having kind of Cub brought to life in the way that we have for the the kind of decade celebrations. It's always been something that we've we've wanted to kind of pick back up. I think partly because we weren't finished with the conversation, I think, with Cub, but also because it was a very special place. And of course, I'm going to be biased to that, but you you see the way that people would kind of react to it. And it was incredibly special. So I think it's it's certainly something that we want to be able to, to kind of revisit. But we would only do it in a way that if we could do justice to it, it would have to feel appropriate. It would have to feel the right space, the right audience and the right team to be able to bring that to life and, and I suppose, carry on its legacy in an, an appropriate way. And talking of the future, I read somewhere that um, you have some really serious concerns about the impact of Brexit on our economy and the way we do things here. I do. And I think it's there's certainly a point of going it's happened. We need to be able to to kind of move on with things. But I think one of the major problems is we're not having those discussions and we're not having them in a mature way. And, you know, I think it's, it's, there's no point just kind of lamenting and just kind of moaning about what's happened. You know, there has been changes to, to a, a, a kind of workforce opportunity. There are changes to what ingredients that we can get hold of, but if we're not able to have all of the, the, the kind of appropriate people in the room you know, food is the biggest manufacturing in this country. If we're not able to, to discuss that in a mature way, it's not only is it very problematic to the fact that the creative industries are our biggest export and food is a major thing within that, but we're, it's, it's also literally the way that we look after ourselves. We need to be able to look at this in a much more balanced manner and it needs to be the people who are involved in it who are part of those conversations. And that's not what's happening at the moment. A sober point to uh, leave it, but I, I can't let you go without asking you a question. Um, well, you'll have been asked a hundred times or more what your favourite <laughs> cocktail is. I'm not quite going to do that, but um, we do ask for a desert island serve. So a desert island drink 
if you are stuck on a desert island, you could only have one thing, what would it be? Um, it's diff- I've become a bit of a stuck record for this because there are a couple of unicorn kind of products out there that are becoming more and more scarce. And I think the conversations around them is, is kind of really made them, you know, even more hallowed as, as a product. And it's also probably the most terrible thing to be able to have if you're on a desert island. But some of the um, old Scotch whiskies that, to me, just the amount of concentration that is packed into them feels so ludicrous. And it tastes, it still remains the, the greatest thing I've ever tasted is a, a 1964 Beaumont from a, from a single Fino cask. But it is the thing that I would, if I could kind of seek it out, and that would be my endless supply. You know, you, you often think about if you were going to be stuck with one of anything, what would it be if it was going to be your one movie, your one album? It's even if it's your favorite album, it's very difficult to kind of imagine the idea of that being what you're, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of almost trapped with. Mm. But I think the, the reason why I've, I've kind of gravitated this as an answer is because it's a, it's a very shifting product, like a great album, you're going to discover new sides of it. You're going to get very familiar with one part. And then all of a sudden it's going to peacock's tail and just start show you a completely different other side it's not a overly polished product it's not like ultra refined it's it's got so much going on that i think it would be the right thing to be to be lost on an island with um so it's again a terrible play given the fact that it's going to be i presume hot and you're going to be needing a lot of kind of water to be able to quench but the old Beaumont whiskey is is going to be my call Okay, it's a good call. And if you've got a bottle of it, you'll soon forget about Brexit. Uh, <laughs> so that's good as well. I, I could talk to you for hours. Ryan, thank you so much. Um, it's been a great pleasure to uh, chat with you. And congratulations on a decade. What a decade. And uh, good luck with um, the rest of the um, bringing all the bars together celebrations. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat. Really enjoyed it. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Well, let's raid the drinks shelf of the IWSC to round off uh, with some medal winners that might help you make the perfect serve. And some of the very highest medal winners here, gold outstanding for which you must achieve 98 points. And that was the score awarded to Loch Lomond Whiskies, 10-year-old single malt Scotch whisky, described by the judging panel this way, a fruit-driven nose showing tropical fruits, especially pineapple, combining with bonfire smoke aromas. Tropical fruits linger on the palate where the gentle smoke is integrated, ending with a vanilla sweetness in the finish. Good malt character, estery and fruity. And from the Highlands to the Canary Islands, for a gold outstanding rum with 98 points, Destillerias Arejocas, 12-year-old Selección Familiar Rum, Ian Burrell, a previous guest here on The Drinking Hour, episode 83, uh, was in charge of the judging for this one. And here's what the panel said. Delicate aromas with cooked orange, hints of spice, brown sugar and vanilla with a subtle floral aromatic impression on the nose, leading to a big, rich, well-rounded palate with bitter orange and tropical fruit flavor characteristics combining with oak influence. Also winning a Gold Outstanding Award on 98 points and also a trophy for best in show. Miguel Torres, 20 Ordage Brandy. Uh, That tasting note, beautifully open nose of bright orange zest, thyme flowers and earl grey tea. The delicate palate has a rich chocolatey warmth that reveals freshly baked brioche, toasted coconut and honeycomb before a long finish of apricot and cinnamon. Amazing complexity. Next, uh, tequila. All the rage right now, of course. Avion Reposado tequila from Perno Ricard's House of Tequila. Gold outstanding again. Ivan Dixon overseeing the judging process here. The fantastic Dino Moncrief, another former guest, episode 18, uh, also on the panel here. And here's that tasting note. Bright and lifted nose with peppery agave notes, buttery and rich with hints of dried fig and caramel on the palate. Vibrant with layered complexity, spicy finish, which resides to soft vanilla and oak. Fabulous depth, flavour and character. 
Finally, a gin from one of our budget retailers that did brilliantly, a gold outstanding medal and a trophy as well. Aldi Haysmith's Rhubarb and Ginger Gin, the judges said this, magnificently well-balanced with the full rich flavours of mouth-watering rhubarb, fiery ginger and juniper. Delicately moist on the finish with the glorious pungency of lip-tingling Jamaican ginger cake, heaped with a generous dollop of deliciously tart rhubarb. Superb. And that's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Ryan, a.k.a. Mr. Lion, and hope you enjoyed listening to that and hope you enjoy a cocktail too. Thanks for your company and see you next week for our highlights of Series 11. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.